0: We've been in Leviticus for a very, very short period of time. As you know, that we, we've been doing our best to try to take these passages seriously, to try to take a look at what's really going on, not just simply gloss over the simplicity of what it says, uh, black uh, words on white paper, but we're t- really trying to dig in and say, what are some things that uh, we could glean from this understanding, these cultural, historical pieces. You've been through uh, teachings that talk about cabbage, and for those of you who remember, The word for cabbage is very similar to the word for offering, which means to draw close, to draw near. And this entire uh, series that we've been in regarding Leviticus is about drawing near, and an offering is about drawing close. Uh, It's not just a religious ritual that you have to do to check box off of your religious duties, but how do we draw near and draw close to God? Uh, Some of you downloaded the Leviticus app, and rather than playing fruit ninja, you've been playing sacrifice animals. Uh, Make sure you don't sacrifice the non-kosher ones, because a pig will fly up every now and then. Don't, Don't sacrifice that one. Some of you have been playing that, and we've been talking a little bit about the tabernacle, and the space, and the holiness of it, and the sacrificial system, and why there are very detailed, I mean, details that we don't want to honestly know about regarding how to sacrifice in the parts of an animal that go where and and, and all of that stuff. Um, We've talked a little bit about why the prescriptions about animals are there because there's a sense of holiness. There's a sense of sacredness about all of life, not just human life, but all of life. Uh, And Danielle talked a little bit about the challenges that we all face given um, food and global society and where we where we get our sustenance from, and what Leviticus could possibly teach us or challenge us regarding the treatment of even our food uh, we 've talked a little bit about ethics and sacrifice and about how you know, these rituals, these traditions that many of us have inherited, that we read, that many people still practice today, are also deeply tied to ethics and how we behave and how what kind of morals are actually lived out in business, in pleasure, in relationships, in commerce, um, for national, international relationships, all of those different types of things. And recognizing that if we live in a globalized society where our neighbor, that phrase neighbor, has now been expanded to me, not just the person that's actually living next door to me, not just the person that lives in my city, but now that's the person that lives anywhere in the world. Um, this Leviticus story, these Leviticus um, commandments and stipulations have deep implications for how we are to live. We talked about how making amends and feeling remorse and feeling sorry for the things that you have done is actually deeply intertwined with the sacrificial system in making amends with God. And how can you even pretend to make amends with God if you don't even feel something for how your sin or your shortcoming has possibly hurt your brother or your sister? And about how this relationship here is actually primary before you even go and sacrifice to the Lord. We talked about sacred spaces, profane spaces and sacred spaces where it's not necessarily that there's something wrong. It's just that there are certain places where certain activities, certain behaviors belong. We talked a little bit in Leviticus chapter 19 about the beautiful world that Leviticus is actually um, charting out for us. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as you love yourself. And you start to see this beautiful reciprocal love that God is calling us to. Even in the midst of the rituals and the practices and the animals, all of that is pointing to something bigger and deeper about how we are to live in the world. We are to be reminded of all of those provisions and all those commandments through a calendar. And Danielle talks about saving this particular date and when this date comes, when the Sabbath comes, when the Feast of Passover comes, which we just celebrated uh, last night with our church, when all of those things come. All of those symbols and rituals remind us of all of those stipulations, all those decrees, all those laws, all those guidelines. And we're reminded once again of the goodness of God in this world and the goodness that we are now called to as a result of celebrating. And last week, uh, we talked a little bit about the year of Jubilee and setting everything free, setting the land free, setting prisoners free. And again, prisoners aren't those people that have done evil things Prisoners are those people that have, out of circumstance, out of situation, found themselves indebted to somebody else as a slave because you just simply didn't have the economic means by which to live. And we talked a little bit about how we can live debt-free, and we can look forward to the year of Jubilee. We can look forward to that time when all of our debts go free. We get to return back home. We get to return back to our family. We get to return back to normalcy. About how even in Leviticus, There are these rhythms and these patterns and these commandments to make sure that no person amongst us is enslaved, that no person amongst us lives under that kind of harsh uh, debt where you just simply can't get out, and that debt is passed down from generation to generation. And I hope that you have seen throughout our time together that this book that is ancient, that is somewhat cumbersome in some of the details, that is very, very earthy, um, that Some of it belongs like an eighth grade health class, some of it you just don't want to touch. This book is radically progressive, radically informative, radically transformative of the kind of people that these Israelites were becoming and set the foundation for the ethics and the morals and the behaviors that we have actually inherited today. And a lot of those behaviors, a lot of those ways in which you treat people, love, loving of your neighbor, standing when the elderly walk in the room, and all of that stuff has been transmitted down through the ages to this particular day. And we are benefactors of that, and let us recognize our ancestors in that. Today, we're going to sew it up. It comes to an end. Leviticus chapter 26 and 27, as we've mentioned before with other chapters, has some redundancy in it some blessings and curses, redemptions and tithes are the main headings, but it talks a little bit about how you are to treat the land, how you are to treat other people, and today what I'd like to do is start with chapter 27, share with you just some little snippets, some insights, and then we're going to go back to chapter 26, because 26 actually has an ending on it. Um, These are the commandments that the Lord has given you at at the uh, mountain of Sinai, and it kind of feels like this is the end, And the question is, what are blessings and curses doing? After all that we have talked about, after this entire journey that we've been on uh, regarding Leviticus, what are blessings and curses doing at the very end of this book? So let's talk a little bit about a tithe and what that is and why that's important, and why that's in the book. Um, And then let's talk a little bit about blessings and curses. Are you ready? What is a tithe? A tithe is very simply a Hebrew word that means one-tenth. That's all that it means. And a tithe was a way of saying, and this is in chapter 27, a tithe was a way of saying that this land that we are entering into, this life that we have, this abundance that we are now experiencing, does not come from us. It comes from somewhere else. And we are to pause and stop for a moment and recognize that whatever it is that we have, whatever nourishment, flourishing, whatever abundance, whatever wealth that we have, it does not come from us. We are not the progenitors. We are not the initiators. We are not the ones who have created and supplied this beautiful life that we we have. We recognize that it comes from somewhere else. And as a result of this, one portion, the first portion, one-tenth of that portion, is set aside as a symbolic representation. And here's the key thing of the whole. Uh, This kind of concept has been passed down to us in a very legalistic fashion, a very legalistic manner, and to say, okay, you got to set aside a tenth of your income, and in Christian circles, for some of you are familiar with this, there's like one huge debate as to whether or not it's like a tenth of your gross salary versus a tenth of your net salary versus a tenth of your allowance versus of a tenth of your car. I mean, there's all sorts of different debates. And it's been brought down to us, uh, once again, kind of like we, we have inherited a lot of other things, as a legalistic Excel spreadsheet accounting way of making sure that you've done your religious duty. And all throughout Leviticus, in fact, all throughout the Torah, there's definitely some delineations as to how this is supposed to be laid out. But again, like everything else is symbolic and representative, this is symbolic and representative that not one-tenth belongs to God. All of it actually comes from him. It is very clear throughout the entire teaching of the, the Genesis, Leviticus, all of that, it's very clear that nothing of what you have came from you. You don't own anything. Doesn't that make you feel good about all those papers that you just signed? <laughs> you don't own anything. And so giving or setting aside a tenth of your income is not a way of checking off a religious duty, it is a way of setting your heart symbolically and ritually in by saying, I recognize two main things. I recognize that God has been phenomenally generous to us. And I will tell you frequently, and I just in my own life, there are moments where I go, I ain't given anything. And in those moments throughout my personal faith walk, I recognize that that attitude for me has come out of a place that I feel as if somehow I've been gypped or somehow I deserve. It comes out of a really ugly part of my spirit. And the moments where I've been most generous have come out of a place where, like, Oh my goodness, I cannot believe how generous someone has been to me. I cannot believe how generous God has been to me. I cannot believe how generous my family, my community has been to me. And that's when my heart is so filled with gratitude. I am absolutely thrilled to give, which is why we call our offering boxes here, joy boxes, because we recognize how good God has been. So for those of us who have been stuck or maybe oppressed or maybe even condemned because you gave a tenth of your net income and not of your gross income. How dare you? What kind of a Christian are you? I would love for you to just simply be freed from the debate and the tyranny of all that like minutia of the debate and just recognize you give. You set aside a portion of this, and this is what the Levitical passage is about. You set aside a portion of this because you recognize that everything that you own belongs to the Lord. And you set that aside, and you give it however you choose to give it, because it is symbolically representative. I'm giving this back to God because it's because uh, I recognize that it all comes from Him in the first place. And then second, uh, so in addition to recognizing God's generosity, it's a recognition that we need the discipline of being thankful all the time. We need the discipline of being thankful all the time. By the way. As a result of that phrase, discipline, thankfulness is not just an attitude that comes and happens upon us. Gratitude and thankfulness is a discipline that you practice, that you put into place to say, even though I may be feeling slighted right now, even though I might be feeling people have been stingy with me, even though I might be feeling as if I'm really suffering under the circumstances, I'm going to choose I'm going to choose to be thankful, choose to be, uh, have gratitude in my heart. It is a discipline. So Leviticus ends with that, and I think that's a very appropriate way for a book like Levitis- Leviticus to end, a place where we recognize how good God has been. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, you read about those stories, and you re- read about how God has been really good to his people, and then to recognize that we must practice a discipline of gratitude wherever we go. Let's back up one chapter. Blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. Now, I will be honest with you. When I read over this passage to not only prepare, but just to soak in it myself, there are some moments where I see that if you don't do this, I'm going to curse you, and this is really the image that comes to mind. God is up there, thunderbolt in hand, cocked and ready to go, just waiting to catch you at just the right moment when you're not doing the right thing that you're supposed to be doing to smite you. And then after he smites you, he's like, yes. (laughs) Got him. And I have a feeling that many of us throughout at one particular point in our lives have felt that God is just waiting for me to screw up, to mess up. God is just through his binoculars, through his telescope, through whatever, just waiting. And he gets so much delight out of seeing me screw up. It makes sense. We have this phrase, if. I hate that word. makes me want to argue with God. Well, then doesn't that make your love not unconditional? If. And it's reasonable. It's understandable why we would draw a conclusion that if you don't do this, well, then I ain't walking with you, or you're going to have these curses, you're going to have... And there's all sorts of different problems in there, such as animals and, you know, the swords of the enemies and your crops are going to fail, you know, all of these kinds of things. Leviticus, like Exodus, like Genesis, is written in the context of a much larger much grander story, and what I'd like to do with you uh, in the short period that we have is try to point out one thing that's going on in chapter twenty-six that might help to pull us back from the minutia, from the details of well, if you do this and that's going to happen, if you do this, it's going to happen, if you do this. Pull us back and take a look at maybe what the writer is doing is setting us up, um, and like I heard one rabbi say, giving us a little wink, a little nod, and saying. Okay, there's these things that I got to tell you about, but I'm going to tell you about it in such a way as I want you to remember something long, long time ago, back in a place where I put you. That was beautiful. That was lovely. That was where you and I were so intimate and close, and we got to live in a place called delight, pleasure, joyfulness, in a place called Eden. And in that place, I Walked with you. I walked with you. And walking with you is that beautiful symbolism of having communion, intimacy, closeness with God. And so, what I'd like to do is share let's take a look back at, to this particular passage because it's amazing how these writers, like I said, with this one rabbi's comment, give you a little wink and a nod and say, pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm trying to do here. And let's see if this can help frame for us how we think about Leviticus and how we think about other passages. You have seen this happen before. I've highlighted some of the passages for you. Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 2, and I apologize if it's hard to read. It was really hard to get all of this on one slide with all of the text. The passage of Leviticus chapter 26 starts with Sabbaths. Observe my Sabbaths. And remember, this is all conditional. If. Here's what you need to do. Observe my Sabbaths, have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands. Now, what commands? What decrees? What is that? Well, just one chapter before, we talked about liberty, Sabbath, jubilee, freedom, if you are to follow all of those commandments. This is what I want you to observe. In Genesis chapter 2 In this particular section, after God creates the Garden of Eden, what does he do? He rests on the Sabbath day, and he takes a day off, and God blesses the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work that he had created and has done. So Leviticus 26, the beginning of the curses and the blessings, the blessings and the curses, starts off with, remember the Sabbath. Why the redundancy? We just talked about Sabbath a chapter before notice what comes next. I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. What comes right before? Notice that God is blessing you with every seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours. I have given you every green plant for food. There seems to be some sort of like Resonance, some sort of like, hey, let's pull this in. Sabbath, trees, crops, fruit, it goes on. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in the safety of your land, which sounds very much like A statement right before I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. earth. It goes on, I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. And here in the Genesis passage, God tells Adam and Eve that you are to subdue the land over every living creature that moves on the ground. And here in Leviticus, God is saying, If you obey my Sabbaths and honor this, then I will remove the beasts of the field. Beasts from the land and the sword passes through. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. Which sounds very much like the Genesis commission to subdue the earth, to conquer it, to rule over it. I will look on you with favor and make, your fruitful, make you fruitful and increase your numbers. What does that sound like to you? The very commission and the blessing that God's, God had given to Adam and Eve be fruitful, increase the in number, and fill the earth. Ancient rabbis reading this passage have noticed these parallels, have noticed that at the very end of Leviticus, they're pulling in imagery, they're pulling in phraseology, they're pulling in concepts and ideas that come from the blessing that comes out of the Genesis creation narrative. And while we might read Leviticus as another list of blessings and curses and things you have to do, subtly, subversively in this text, these authors are saying, wait a second, by obeying, by honoring the Sabbath, by paying attention to the way that God has behaved in this world, and by you also behaving in this world, not only will all of these lists of things will happen, but by that list of things that will happen, you will also be able to recreate the beautiful Eden experience right here, right now, in this land. Genesis chapter 1 The beautiful relationship that God has with humanity, that humanity has with each other, and that humanity has with the earth was not just for a time back in Genesis. Once again, as we've seen before, Leviticus ends with, if you do these things, if you do these things, the very experience that you saw back in Genesis can also happen right here, right now. With you. And this is right before Israel is heading into the promised land. You get to take Eden with you. Take it with you. Uh, I'll have uh, two orders of Eden to go, please. You get to take Eden with you. So, in accordance with covenantal language, as we've talked about before, maybe we should be reading this passage not thunderbolt in hand. If you do these things, then I'm. Mm, Blessings, curses, coming your way. Maybe we should be reading these passages as, please, do these things. Behave like me. Follow after all that I have given you. And the very covenant of fruitfulness and blessing and delight and joy that you had in Eden will also be had right here, right now. Don't forget the story. Because if you forget the Genesis narrative, if you forget how God placed you in that garden, if you forgot, if you forget that time where I walked with you, then all of these new commandments, all these new stipulations, all of this new context by which I'm giving you a laws and decrees will be completely lost and it will be distilled down and stripped away from all of its beauty and just be a simple religious list of duties and things that you're supposed to do. Don't forget this story. Don't forget Genesis. Don't forget Eden. And if you can do that, if you cannot forget the history that you and I share, then I will walk with you. Where did God first walk? in Eden. In Eden, just back then, I've heard Christians say and other people who study the Bible say, geez, well, way back then, you know, God was just walking with Adam and Eve. It must have been nice to have God right there. The promise here is God will walk with you just like he walked in Eden, to be that close, to be that present, to be that intimate with you right here, right now. So there's two ways I would love for us to end and to close Leviticus, as well as this will be a lesson that we'll carry with us for a while. The first is through history. To recognize that these Israelites, as we have gone through Leviticus and Genesis and Exodus as well, they bring with them a history. They bring with them a context. They bring with them geography, Uh, politics, economics, and there's a lot of things within that that uh, that we must understand in order to discern what are the lessons and the points that are going on there. But the other piece of it is this. Leviticus, like every other passage, comes within the context of a story. And I have a feeling that when we get to passages like Leviticus and other passages that are going to come where there's a list of things that you have to do and do not, we forget the story we forget Genesis. We forget pulling in those themes. We forget that God has crafted a narrative and that narrative is fundamentally what we should be living by. A narrative of intimacy and beauty and chaos to order. That narrative, that story. And if we can live by that story, if we can do that, if we can not forget that story, then God can walk with us again. Um, I wanted to show you, uh, this might be slightly tangential, but there are some nuggets in this video clip that I think are just really powerful and applicable to what um, I've been sharing about. If you know about an organization called StoryCorps, StoryCorps is an organization started by the gentleman that's going to be sharing in this video uh, to collect people's stories. And it's really, really beautiful. It's touching. It's moving. And here is a moment where he talks about the importance of those stories.
1: By asking you one of the questions on my list, right? Anything you want.
0: Okay. So, what were you like as a kid?
1: I was pretty weird. I didn't want to do anything but watch TV. And I spent a lot of time by myself. But I always liked talking to older people, like the waitress at the luncheonette near my house or my grandparents. I remember when I was just a few years older than you, your great grandpa Abe and your great grandma Rose and her sisters came over to our apartment for Thanksgiving. After dinner, I found this tape recorder lying around, and somehow I got the idea to interview them. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I recorded their voices and stories, and I saw how much they loved being listened to. A few years later, your great-grandpa and your great-grandma and all her sisters passed away, but I remembered I'd made that tape, so I went looking for it, but I couldn't find it. Even now, when I go to your grandma's house, I go looking for that tape, just hoping it's going to turn up. I don't get it. Why do you keep looking for it? Because it would make me so happy to hear those voices again. And I'd love to play that tape for you. You know, doing that recording really taught me something. You can find the most amazing stories from regular people. All you have to do is ask them about their lives and listen.
0: Really? That's it?
1: Yeah, it's simple. We can learn so much about the people all around us, even about the people we already know, just by taking the time to have a conversation. And if you pay just a little attention, you'll find wisdom and poetry in their words.
0: Do people really want you to ask about their lives?
1: Yeah, they do. Most people love to be listened to because it tells them how much their lives matter. All you need to ask are questions like, who is the most important person in your life? Or what are you proudest of? Really, listening closely is simple. When you're curious, treat people with respect, and have just a little courage to ask the important questions, great things are going to happen.
0: I feel as if that video encapsulates for me an approach to these scriptures that I feel would be really, really helpful. Recorded stories. I want to go back to those stories. Tell me, tell me again. It would make me so happy to hear that. And it's amazing how much you can learn about people by just simply listening to their stories. And I feel like we sometimes approach these texts because they are holy texts, and we just simply read the words off the page. But if we had just a little bit of humility and respect, maybe we could ask these people some questions. Who are their best friends? Tell me about the life that you've been living. Tell me about what it was like coming out of Egypt. Tell me what it was like walking through the desert. Tell me what it was like when you sat around the campfire and told stories about the creation of the world, and how did you do that? And if we began to ask those kinds of questions and get the stories from these Our ancient ancestors, our ancestors, that would be something beautiful for how to approach texts like this. And Leviticus 26, in my opinion, does exactly that. By pulling in those Genesis themes, it is reminding us once again of the story that's been passed down. And even the laws and the commands that they are obeying in that particular moment are infused with the history and the story. Leviticus is going to be with us. I have a feeling for a long time. God hates shrimp. I don't always quote Leviticus, but when I do, I leave out the condemnation of cutting hair, getting tattoos, eating pork, braiding hair, or wearing jewelry. And I have a feeling that you and your friends, your co workers, family members, even, over the course even of the next couple years, may find yourself in a conversation about something that's happening in our culture, something that's happening in the world. And somehow, somewhere along the line, the book of Leviticus might actually come up and be quoted. I've actually seen this happen a couple of times. And you're like, whoa, you know, here we are having a conversation. Somebody quotes Leviticus. And what I'd love for you to be able to do in that moment, depending upon how you feel, depending upon the context, of course, is lovingly, respectfully listen and engage. But be able to then engage in such a way as, let me tell you a story Let me not just quote this text at you and throw at you or get thrown at words on a page. Let me tell you some history. Let me tell you a story. Let me say once upon a time, there was this beautiful narrative that transformed the lives of our ancestors, that gave them such meaning, direction, purpose, chaos to order, a transformation of political and economic systems to justice, and to love and compassion, let me tell you that story. And as we talk about that story, then we can get into the rest of the book and say, now let me tell you why these things were written down and how we can then translate them to our day. Thank you so much. You are phenomenal people. What people show up on a regular basis to hear about Leviticus, and you did, I just want to thank you uh, for being the kind of congregation that's willing to do some hard work. We recognize that not every single one of these talks were so inspiring. You left with, you know, it's like, yay, we talked about bodily fluids today. I feel so uplifted and inspired. Now, I, I recognize the complexities of going through a book like this. But I also recognize that for you to do that hard work and to trudge through with humility and open eyes, open hearts, open souls, to say what can we do, what can we glean, and how can we use, leverage all of this to transform the world around us, I feel so tremendously blessed to be in company of people that are willing to do this kind of work. And we do hope that it has been a blessing, and that through this work that we've done together, God has made himself more manifest, and has walked with you more closely, more intimately. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the journey that we have, and be with us on our next couple journeys. Um, For Kurt, that's coming next week, uh, for the talk that's coming May 8th on sexual identity. I pray that our hearts and our minds, God, are just continually moved and transformed by who you are. And uh, I do thank you for this congregation, for these people, these friends of mine, Uh, who are willing to engage at this level, to take the transformational power of these texts, but most of all, the transformational power of the stories of your people told through these texts and use them and leverage them in this world. So help us to do that with wisdom, with grace, with insight. And I pray that all of us uh, are better representatives of you and your kingdom as a result of this study and as a result of our journey together. And I pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. Man.